This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, since we last convened our Zoomer squad, we got the shocking news that Canada has the highest rate of COVID-19 death in long-term care in the Western world. And that statistic confirms what we have already seen happening in our communities. Our political leaders have promised there will be reviews and there will be change. But the problems that brought us to this place have been festering for years through successive governments of different stripes. And now part of the public discussion has turned to the question of whether we should get rid of for-profit nursing homes and bring long-term care under the Canada Health Act. Now, those in the for-profit sector argue that the ownership model is irrelevant, but the numbers are irrefutable. According to a Toronto Star investigation, a resident in a for-profit home has been about 60% more likely to catch COVID-19 and 45% more likely to die than a resident in a nonprofit home. And the gap is even bigger with municipally run homes. There are 10 of them here in Toronto. A for-profit resident has been about four times more likely to catch COVID-19 and four times more likely to die than residents in our city's facilities. So, what do you think of that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'd like to hear from you, but right now we go to Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello. Okay, let's start with Marissa. Uh, Marissa, do you think is, the, is, is that a reasonable way to frame the discussion, profit versus nonprofit? Well, I think it's an important debate that's being had at the moment. Um, and it's why we see sort of around the world for-profit homes tend to perform poorer than other not-for-profit or municipally-run facilities. Um, this is a challenge that existed before COVID, um, and it is a ch- challenge that will persist. And part of the reason is because for-profit homes tend to have less staff. Staff is the biggest budget line item for homes that are trying to turn a profit. And so the first thing that they'll do is cut staff. And so that's one of the biggest challenges. But when you also look at a number of other studies that have been, there tend to be higher hospitalization rates, higher mortality rates, more bed ulcers. So these are really troubling trends that we're seeing in long-term care homes that are for profit. At the same time, um, a lot of the challenges do exist in not-for-profit, particularly around staffing. So those those things do exist in other facilities. Um, And we do need to appreciate and understand that to build new long-term care homes, you know, these are $40 million projects. 
So if the private sector doesn't step in to build these facilities, is that something that the government will allocate funding towards? So I think, you know, from our perspective, how do we, so in the absence of changing the system, how do we work with the system that we have to ensure that people are receiving better care right across the board? David, should we change well, the system? I mean, this is this is really, you know, well, you know, it's just in the last week or so, but that seems to be the question. Well, I, I echo a little bit of what Marissa says. I think that if the model becomes performance-based rather than ownership-based, uh, we'll get a better outcome. Because if you suddenly say there can't be for-profit, what do you do with the existing ones? Uh, how do you meet the increased demand before COVID even came along, we had the Minister of Health and Doug Ford both talking about ending hallway medicine by providing more long-term care beds. Where are they going to come from? What do you do with the people living in a for-profit home now? Where do you move them to? So if you, if you keep the focus on ideologically, we like for-profit, we hate for-profit, I think that's a dead end. If you say every long-term care facility must meet these requirements, A, B, C, D, and then let the ownership structure fall where it may, I think that will lead to better outcomes. Uh, but we, we have, I mean, they are under the same regime as not-for-profits right now. And if you ask them, they'll tell you we have very strict restrictions on the money that we receive from the government. So the money we receive for food has to go for food, etc., etc., Peter. Uh, but they still have to eke out a profit. Yeah, and, and they, they generally take their profit by uh, reducing staff levels. And um, the thing to um, realize about this Star article, though, is the, like, the story isn't finished on, on uh, outbreaks yet. And, um, you know, the, the, the data we're getting now is a little bit what they call loose, you know? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it's drawing a picture, but it's not drawing a complete picture. And um, I, I think we're going to have to wait until the end of it to, to have a, a clear picture on, on how, you know, the, the for-profits did against the non-profits. So, like right now, it, it looks pretty stark, but, but the, um, you know, it, it's still ongoing and it will be ongoing for a while now. So um, I, don't, I don't think we should draw any firm conclusions yet from the Star article. Well, I, I have to say, and there have been other studies, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we speak to advocacy groups like Marissa, like the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, lawyers uh, who specialize in lawsuits against nursing homes, I mean, it's, it's the single thing that comes up, uh, that, that there's a difference in profit versus nonprofit. And, you know, I looked at their method and, and the for-profit uh, long-term care homes are questioning their method, but, you know, I'm not a statistician, but it, it looked pretty sound to me, Marissa. Yeah, no, no, it, you're you're right about that. Um, this isn't, these aren't new findings, um, and in fact, the findings from the STAR piece likely won't come as a surprise to many people in the industry. Uh, for a long time now, people have been advocating for the elimination of for-profit care. One, why are, why are we trying to turn a profit off the backs of vulnerable seniors? And two, statistically speaking, when you look at these studies that have been conducted, there is a trend. They do tend to perform poorer. 
um, it's just there are a number of implications to eliminating for-profit homes in Ontario. They account for more than 50% of long-term care homes. So what do you do with them? Do they grant, do you grandfather them? Um, do you somehow convert them to not-for-profit? So I think there are a number of questions um, that need to be answered, but it's certainly unequivocal that uh, en masse, the trend is for-profit homes tend to perform worse than than not-for-profits. David, I mean, uh, you know, since they do have strict guidelines on how they spend the money they get from the government, uh, is a possible solution to really mandate staffing levels? or uh, And we have a staffing shortage to begin with. I think the real solution is to broaden the problem and to say, I mean, let me just remind people, before COVID came along, we had hallway medicine. We had the scandal of hallway medicine. We need long-term care beds. We had the government promising to create more long-term care beds. We have the aging of the population. Certainly the demand on long-term care of any kind isn't going down. So I think the government needs to step back and say, what is the total demand today? What is the total demand likely to be tomorrow? What does the society have the right to expect every single building to deliver? And you're right, Libby, maybe it is mandating staff levels, whether it's food, whether it's nutrition, whether it's staff levels. What does a long-term care facility need to look like? If they attack on the basis of ownership only, and I don't have a dog in the fight, I don't, I'm not an investor in any of this stuff, um, I'm worried that it'll distract attention from the tremendous pressure on supply and on quality. And I think those are the topics that need to be attacked and spelled out. Um, where are these long-term care homes going to come from? What do they need to look like? What standards are good that we already have? What additional standards need to be added? I think that's where the focus should be. Well, this government was elected saying they're going to build 30,000 long-term care beds in, I think it was five years, uh, you know, but they have to be built. 15,000. 15,000, I'm sorry. It was 30,000 over 10 years. Yes, yes they have to be built. Who's gonna and build? I'm not sure we've even seen one, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure how many we have seen. Right. Peter? Uh, you know, the, the other argument is that why not just bring it under the Canada Health Act? Mm-hmm. I, I brought that up a, a couple of um, Mondays ago, and it didn't really <laughs> float that well. Um, I, I, I guess the, the argument was against uh, we don't need more regulation, we don't need another level of regulation. But um, if we're going to look at these places like hospitals, which we haven't been doing yet, um, certainly there's going to be, you know, there there is going to be um, uh, scrutiny that, uh, we need more scrutiny than we have now. The provinces aren't doing a good job, so the federal option is there. And and uh, and it's being talked about. Trudeau, Trudeau mentioned it at a press conference, and then he backed away from it, saying it's a provincial jurisdiction, but he did mention it. And so, so that means talks are going on around the caucus table about uh, whether to bring it in. Well, yeah, and uh, if he if he starts messing around with provincial jurisdictions, he's certainly going to get in trouble with Quebec. Yeah. Where where it looks like you have just about the worst situation in the country, by yeah. the way. Yeah, and I think that's why he backed away, Levy, because he, he didn't want to, you know, light those flames. Uh, so so that's a whole other layer of, of complexity 
to this thing. And then there's the question of the cost. I'm, I'm just forgetting a, a very impressive statistic, is that the amount of money required just to continue the level of service or lack thereof you know, that we have now to 2050 is staggering, and that's without improving anything, Marissa. And just to go back to the provincial thing for a moment, too, um, if 80%, 75-80% of deaths are in long-term care facilities, if 5,049.90 in Canada as of this morning, let's say 5,000, so maybe 4,000 deaths in the country, high threes in long-term care facilities, um, how come with 8 million people, Quebec has 3,000 deaths, and with 5 million people, British Columbia has 121 deaths. So what's going on there? Do you dig deeper and say, well, is BC doing something wonderful in their long-term care homes that is keeping the death rate that low? Because their population is less than Quebec, but it's 5 million against 8 million. They should have over 1,000 deaths if it was proportional. They have 121 deaths in, in BC as of this morning, 117 in Alberta with 4 million. So half of Quebec and 5% of the number of deaths that Quebec has. So what's Alberta doing in its long-term care homes that Quebec isn't doing? Marissa? So there are a number of factors that would likely play into those results, David. Um, As you know, there are very few staffing standards in homes in Ontario, for example. The only real legislated requirement is that there be one RN on hand at any given time. So different homes will staff up in different ways depending on their population and whether or not they are trying to turn a profit, for example. Um, But the other thing you need to remember is that in BC, they prevented their care workers from working in multiple homes two weeks before Ontario and Quebec did. And that, we know, significantly contributed to the spread of this virus. So, you know, I think that there are a number of factors at play here, but that was certainly a big one. Okay, let's take a call from Darko in Etobicoke. Hey, Darko. Yeah, I think uh, you're, you guys brought up a good point about comparing the provinces, but also, like, because we're comparing countries, I'd assume the United States has, has got a higher privatization rate just because they do it in hospitals. So, like, why are, are we below them if, if, if uh, government-run facilities are better? So, like, I think it's more than just looking at that type of ownership and maybe the regulations are different. Well, I think I think the situation in the United States is that they have such a bad record outside the long-term care homes, and their death rate is so high, right? Because uh, right. we are more than ten percent of the United States, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, so you usually expect a tenth of whatever they have, and we're nowhere. Thank goodness. We're nowhere near that. A number that I saw on the weekend was that 30% of the deaths in the U.S. are in long-term care. Uh, Marissa or David or Peter, do you want to weigh in with a comparison to the U.S.? Though I guess that's the last place we should be comparing ourselves to. I I think, Libby, though, that you could make very similar. uh, The problem with all these conversations is they assume uniform death rates and uniformity to the entire country. The United States, as of this morning, has 80,000 deaths, 36,000 in New York slash New Jersey. Uh, The deaths per million people, per million, is 1,200 deaths per million 
in New York, New Jersey, with 28 million people. Texas also has 28 million people. They have 39. They have, they have fewer deaths than uh, Ontario, with 20, with double our population, 1,133 deaths in Texas for a death per million of 39, whereas Ontario's death rate is 119. So it's so regionalized. It's so different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction that you have to be very careful um, in drawing, uh, you know, overly broad conclusions because it's extremely uh, varied by by jurisdiction, including in the United States. Okay, let's take a call from June in Welland. Hello, June. Oh, hello. Um, let's turn my radio off. Yes, um, I just wanted to comment one thing different between long-term care non-for-profits as compared to for-profits. I'm working on a I'm on a board of a non-for-profit. Is that we have the ability to fundraise, mm-hmm. and we can get um, donations that help us to purchase a lot of items and help with a lot of things in the homes that a pro- obviously a for-profit cannot do. That's right. Hmm. That's and that makes a big difference in, in what we provide in care for our patients as far as things we can provide for them. And uh, is your fundraising must mm-hmm. be pretty successful. Well, I don't think we know how it isn't as good as we'd like it to be by any means, but I think that there's probably other homes that even have better fundraising ability than we do, and we're just increasing that now. And so, therefore, that does make a difference when you don't have, and we don't have to make a profit. One of the things that's come out of a recent meeting with, the C- with what's going on right now with the COVID-19 is that we don't need to make a profit this year. We're trying to put some money aside because we have to do redevelopment as a mandate of the government. And so we're trying to put money aside for that because we have to have so much of it in order to the government to give us money. And so we, but we're not worrying about that this year. I mean, this year there's just, you know, there's not, that's not a concern. We just spend what we need to keep everybody safe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to hear. Thank you very much, June. And I think the other thing, just quickly, I, I won't go into it, but we need to revise long-term care. We need to look at what they're doing in some of the European countries and stuff, and maybe just putting our, our elderly in long-term care isn't the sole answer. Maybe there's other ways of doing it from the way we do it. Yep. Thanks. Thanks very much, June. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of talk about what they call congregate living. I'm, I'm not exactly sure about the details of that, but in the, in the meantime, you know, we've got long-term care. Can I sure. make a comment about uh, what your previous caller, was her name June? Yes. I got that? Okay. So I appreciate so much what June had to contribute there because she's so right. Not-for-profit arm or not-for-profit homes, you know, they can fundraise, there might be a charitable arm, but, you know, when they're running a home, it's a zero-based budget, so costs go out, dollars come in, and that's how they orchestrate their budget. There isn't any profit, whereas for-profit homes, you know, they're on the hook for the liability regarding the cost to build the home, and then they're also on the ho- on the hook to turn to turn a profit. But when she also mentioned the need to look at alternative solutions, I think it's important to remember that at least 20% of people living in long-term care homes and or retirement homes could have their needs better met at home. So when we're we're thinking about solutions to long-term care and there isn't one simple solution, um, I think home care has to be part of that equation, trying to meet people's needs in the community and at home, which is ultimately where they want to be. Absolutely. I mean, we've been, as far as I can recall, talking about this till we're blue in the face. And there's a whole other 
aspect to this, in my opinion. I was talking to Dr. Samir Sinha. He, of course, is one of the authors of that that survey, that international survey that found us really at the bottom of the heap. And uh, he, in his calculations, in their calculations, included retirement homes because he said, hey, the population of retirement homes who are under, which are under a very completely different regime is not that different. I mean, I guess people in nursing homes are uh, more frail and more sick and a bit older, but, you know, it, it, it's not that different. Not necessarily. A lot of people, there are, there is a percentage of the population in retirement homes that are perfectly independent um, and are able to operate autonomously without additional care required. And then there is another faction of people in retirement homes that do require significant care, um, potentially even 24-hour care, as is sort of meant to be delivered in long-term care settings. Um, and so it really depends on access. Um, many people may not qualify for long-term care, but their needs are great, so they end up in a retirement home, or maybe the wait list for long-term care is too long, and so they would end up in a retirement home. Really, at this point in time, unless you're on the crisis list for long-term care, you're really not getting getting in. So what options do you have? You can continue to live in your home, which in many cases may be unsafe, or you can go into a very expensive retirement home setting. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that Dr. Singha would have, you know, factored in retirement homes into that equation. And David, I mean, does it even make sense to talk about uh, profit versus nonprofit and to leave that divide between retirement homes and nursing homes? Well, that's that's a very good point, Libby, because I think what we really need to reevaluate is what is the entire continuum look like. We know that people prefer to. Uh, age at home. And in fact, I've been listening, uh, you know, via the CARP um, channel for years, politicians talking about aging in place, aging in place, it saves the healthcare system money, it's uh, less expensive, it's what people want anyway. So this is an old theme that the politicians have been mouthing. It's not something brand new, but they haven't really taken a holistic look at you know, A to Z, what is what does the continuum look like when I start to need a little bit of help around the house with so-called ADL activities of daily living, somebody comes in a few days a week to help out, to more intensive uh, help maybe, but not yet medical treatment as such, uh, particularly absent dementia or underlying medical conditions, maybe I need more physical help, but I'm not there yet for medical treatment, all the way through the spectrum out the other end to, you know, end of near end of life where there's 24-7 medical care and treatment needed. They, they haven't really provided one clear pathway with a strategy to address that whole runway. They've got it siloed and chopped into subsections that don't necessarily coordinate one with the other. And until you get that overall look, I don't think we're going to have it solved. Let's hear from Marion in Thornhill. Hello, Marion. Hi. Hello. Hello, you're on the air. Yes. I'm wondering if there is such a thing as ratios per uh, the elderly on a floor in uh, a long-term setting. No, there aren't. Um, Why is that not? It's something that we've been advocating for for a long time, and other seniors advocates have said there's a real need for there is ratios when you go into a daycare. There is ratios when you are talking about an elementary school or high school 
why isn't elderly as good as the children? Good question. <laughs> well, part of it is because ageism is so pervasive in our society, we don't even recognize it anymore. Um, and the other thing is, is there, you know, there seems to be some debate about whether ratios are the right way forward or whether or not a certain number of hours of care is the appropriate way. But either way, we need something better than what we have right now, because the only minimum, as I said, in Ontario, and this varies across provinces, but in Ontario is that there be one RN on hand at all times. And that's but the RN it. is not changing the right. elderly. You that's have, right. and I know for a fact, because my mother's been dead for 10 years, she was at Baycrest for eight years, and the first three weeks that I was there, I was watching this nonsense of three PSWs to 28 elderly people who have to be washed, changed, and dressed, and to be uh, brought out for breakfast. Yeah. Now, some of these people haven't, were not brought out to breakfast because they weren't changed, they weren't showered, they weren't anything. Thank you, Marion, for yeah, raising right. that. Um, before we go, I would like to raise this issue that as we speak, the long-term care homes in Ontario uh, will have uh, they've passed the deadline for putting their recovery plans to to the government uh, is that is is that going to produce the right solution who wants to take that well it, it's a bit like uh, shutting the barn door after the uh, you know the, sure. like it, it's a bit late in the day but I, I, I suppose better late than never you know David it just speaks to the, the chaos of the whole thing. Suddenly, when we're at the end, they're asked for, what are you going to do now to reduce infections and transmission? Um, the, let's be blunt. This whole thing caught the system by surprise. That's fair enough. Nobody was expecting this virus, and nobody within our system uh, you know, asked for this problem. But it just shows uh, brutally all the deficiencies in the system. I'm not surprised they're scrambling to deal with it. Um, the question is, how much confidence do we have that they're going to do anything about it afterwards? And we'll see. Marissa? Um, I think I would sort of echo what David and Peter have just said, is it's, you know, <laughs> we're, in many ways, the pandemic is not over, so we are anticipating potentially a second wave in the fall, and so it's good that the homes have these plans in place, but why were they not in place months ago? Um and, you know, maybe there was an opportunity for homes to deliver these plans and then there'd be some discussion about, okay, how to make them more robust so that we can stop this disease right at the door. It's just so regrettable and unconscionable that of 49,000 deaths in Canada, over 80% have been in long-term care settings. Um, it's so... Yeah. Uh that's uh, all the time we have. Marissa, I know that you are going to be testifying before two important committees this week, and uh, I guess we'll hear about that next time. Do you want to give us uh, 10 seconds on, on what that will be about? Sure. Well, you know, I suppose these conversations can go in many different ways, so it'll be up to the MPs to determine what questions they likely want to ask of me. Um, having said that, I'm presenting in front of Huma and Hessa, um, there's federal standing committees, um, and it'll likely be about the federal government's response to COVID-19 and where could they have stepped in to support provinces in a way that 
you know, doesn't necessarily conflict with our Constitution in Canada, all that. Okay, well, uh, we look forward to hearing all about it. In the meantime, thank you so much. I mean, this is just such a huge issue that, uh, you know, we can't tackle it all in one day. Thank you so much, David Kravit, Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.